The last time that this subject was preached was June 16th, 2002. <clears throat> Daniel Jones, Austin Oley, you were eight years old at the time. Lewis, Stephen, Jr., you guys were 10. Matthew, you were 17. Adam, Jerry, Zach, Joel, you guys weren't even here at the time. That's one reason why this is going to be valuable. Amen. Even though it's a repeat of something that was done some years back. Because those who can most profit from it weren't either here or had other things on their mind. Weren't thinking about being a, a daddy. Weren't thinking about being a leader, possibly, in this congregation. It's also something that should encourage all of us. If you think about the history that God has recorded us in Scripture, Scripture itself is a wonderful thing. Think about this for just a second. God could have written down just a, a list of rules and regulations, of doctrines and practices that we should have. Okay? What would we have? Well, we'd have a guideline by what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. Right? But that's kind of cold and stark. So he didn't give us just that. There are passages, especially in the New Testament, that are very doctrinally oriented, where Paul, for example, is going through line after line, precept after precept, a very tight theological reasoning. And we learn things from that. But the bulk of this book is stories. It's histories. It's chronologies. It's talking about men and women, real men and real women who live their lives. It talks about how they interacted with other men and women. More importantly, how they interacted with God. And God interacted with them. And that is very powerful for us. We can we could look at that list of do's and don'ts, if that's all God had given us, and think, wow, this is overwhelming. How can I do that? But he's given us examples of men and women with the same frailties, the same fears, the same concerns that you and I have. He's given us the examples of their lives and shown through them what He can do, what He will do for those who will follow Him. That's why it's valuable for us to consider a book like Nehemiah. <clears throat> what I'd like to do is do a quick review of the book of Nehemiah uh, when it was actually first preached sometime between 1993 and 2000. I think it covered a number of weeks. I know it covered a number of weeks. Don't have the time to do that. I hope you enjoyed reading a couple of chapters from it. I hope it'll be a source that you'll go back and read after this. I hope to whet your appetite to go back and look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of my heroes. Nehemiah is one of those guys when I look at, I say, wow, that's a man I want to be like. I can identify with some of the things he's gone through. I've never been a governor, which is what he was. He was the, he was appointed governor over Jerusalem at a very difficult time in its history. You think about it. The book of Nehemiah is written when the Jews had been allowed to come back under Cyrus to Jerusalem. He had given them the command to go back and rebuild the city. 
and to rebuild the worship of Jehovah there. This was after 70 years of where they had been slaves, where they had been outcast and foreigners in a strange land. And now the Lord had heard their cry and let them come back to the land. But there was a problem. The city had been very well destroyed. Talking about the walls of the city. And in that day, that was your defensive mechanism. The walls that you built around your city. Jerusalem itself is up on a mountain. But even being up on a mountain, if you don't have walls in this day and time, you are defenseless. And as we, as you see, as you read through the book of Nehemiah, the very first part, those walls had been knocked down, had been punctured, had been rendered null and void if it comes to defense. So the people were in fear. Only a small number had gone back. Only a small group of the Jews were actually back in the city. This is a city that could hold well over a million people. But at this time, if you go and look at the genealogies and make some calculations, there was only about 50,000 people there. So they were intimidated. They were just trying to scramble out a living, as it were. And God rose up Nehemiah. He gave Nehemiah a burden, put Nehemiah in a position to where he was able to be effective and helpful to actually rebuild not just the walls of the city, but to reinstitute the full worship of God. That's why he's important. And if we look around us today at the world we live in, where all the scriptural boundaries are broken down, I mean, some of us that grew up, you know, some of us that are in our 40s and 50s and 60s now, you know, we can think back to when we were children and how different it was back then, where even at that point in time, you could quote the Bible or say something about the Bible, and it would make an impact on someone. It doesn't today. It makes no impact today on most people you want to talk to. So we live in a very similar time to where the rules are broken down, and we can be... Nehemiah's in our lives. That's why we want to look at this. Very quickly, chapter 1 of the book of Nehemiah. Verses 1 through 4, we see the condition of Jerusalem that came to Nehemiah. He heard about it and how it affected him. One of the things we'll look at later is that Nehemiah was a man of passion. He couldn't look at the state of Jerusalem and say, well, hey, after all, we did sin against God. That's what we deserve, you know. Yeah, boy, wouldn't it be nice if somebody did something? No, he looked at it personally and said, this is terrible. This is awful. This is the city of the great God. This is where Jehovah is worshipped. It ought to be rebuilt. We've been given the decree from our rulers to do it. Why isn't somebody doing it? That was his attitude. In verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, he prays. One of the, I'm going to review the book of Nehemiah. Then we're going to go over four lessons of leadership we can learn from him. And one of the most important lessons is what we did back here. It's what's mentioned often, and that's prayer. That is praying. Nehemiah, as soon as he saw and his heart was stirred, he went to the Lord in prayer to try to get an answer to try to get help to do something about it. Chapter 2. 
Nehemiah, we find, find out at the very last verse of chapter 1, was the king's cupbearer. Artaxerxes was the king of the Persian Empire at this time. What's a cupbearer? A cupbearer was an officer of high rank in the royal courts. His daily duty was to serve the drinks and the food before the king and his court. You say, oh, he was just a waiter, right? He was a head waiter. Uh Uh-uh. In those days, uh, very often, you can read the histories. Throughout any empire you want to talk about, there were always intrigues. People were always trying to become the new ruler. And they had no uh, qualms about bumping off, killing the man who's in power so they could take over power. Poisoning was a very simple way to do it. That way it might not be traced back to you. So the kings had cupbearers. Those were men who would actually take the first drink, eat the first bites of the food prepared to make sure it hadn't been poisoned. This was a position of great power because you had to be trustworthy. You had to be the most trustworthy person just about in the kingdom for the king or the emperor or the ruler to have you there because his life was in your hands. He knew that. So being the cupbearer of a king, there are very few listed in history. And they're all men of great renown, of importance. They were usually chosen because of their handsomeness, because of their intelligence. Qualifications for the job were not held lightly. They were highly esteemed and valued in the kingdom for their modesty, industriousness, and courage. After all, if somebody was out to get the king, who was the one likely to intercept the poison? (laughs) It would be the cupbearer. So this was an important role that Nehemiah had in this court. And very interesting thing to notice. We've talked about this before. Brother Jonathan has brought this out to us. You know, we have to do a little bit of understanding of some of these things because we don't live in the same kind of society back then. Kings. I mean, we think about a king, we might think of, oh, you know, uh, the royal heads of, uh, of England, right? And it's some, you know, quaint thing that they have over there. Kings were a very different way of thinking throughout history up until our modern so-called age. A king had ultimate power. He had absolute power in some places like the Persian Empire. And as Brother Jonathan's pointed out to us before, if you walked into king's presence, well, it was an honor. Only the best could appear before the king, before the emperor. It was a great privilege and a great honor. And you were expected to act along those lines. Which meant that you were always smiling in his presence. Because this is the king. This is the most noble, intelligent, powerful man in our kingdom. Oh, I'm happy. I'm, I'm deliriously happy to be in your presence, sir. You didn't dare ever show even the slightest hint of problems or displeasure in your life. You put that all back in the back of your head so that you could show the, the, the beaming countenance in his presence. Because if you did not, if he looked at you and said, I don't like your face. There were usually men around the way, you know, around his presence, you know, with spears and shields, who'd be more than happy to escort you out 
and in and you know uh, help you go to the other world, you know, the next life. They would have no thoughts whatsoever of, you know, except for the fact they wouldn't want to embarrass the king by actually spearing you in his presence, but they would put a bag over your head. We see, right, in one case over in the book of Esther, they'd put a bag over your head, take you out, and execute you. And in the very first part of chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah is in his job before the king. But he's thinking about Jerusalem. He's thinking about the state of Israel. And he's not at his best. And the king notices it. So when you see down there, it points about in verse... Verse 2. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing that thou art not sick? You know, he could understand if you were sick that you would might look not look well, but well, you're not sick, Nehemiah, so why are you sad in my presence? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. You know, we you hear the phrase, I saw my life flash before my eyes. That was Nehemiah. He could see himself being taken out. But he was both the reputation he had, more importantly, the reputation he had with the Lord, with Jehovah. The king immediately asked, well, what's wrong? In a conciliatory way, he answers, and then the king said unto me, verse 4, for what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Prayer. In the heat of the moment, In the middle of the events of the day, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. He didn't have to wait to go to a prayer closet. And don't misunderstand me. We ought to set aside private time to go to the Lord in prayer, to speak to him. But the Lord will hear us if we're in the middle of something, say, Lord, help me. What did Peter say when he was walking on the water and got distracted by the waves and the wind? And started to sink. What lengthy prayer did he have there? Lord, save me. The Lord heard him. Nehemiah. You'll see throughout this, as Brother Paul alluded to in our prayer session this morning. Throughout this, you'll see Nehemiah going to the Lord in prayer. But chapter 2. We see him before Artaxerxes. Verses 1 through 8. Verses 9 through 10. We see him when he arrives. He gets given permission to go, and you don't find out till later. He wasn't just given permission to go check on his nation. He was given the status of the Tirshatha. That's the governor of the province. And for 12 years, he was the governor of the area around Judah, Jerusalem. And he had all the power of that office which was very good, very helpful for what needed to be done. There's opposition as soon as he arrives. As soon as he arrives and and makes a determination of exactly how bad the situation is and then tells the rulers of the Jews, here's why why I'm here. I'm sure you all wonder, why am I coming from the court of the king himself? I'm here so we can build these walls. So we can build up the city of our God. 
and reestablish his worship as it ought to be. Enemies hear about that real quickly. And they're not very pleased with it. And he, immediately upon arrival, faces opposition. Well, and we see his reaction to that opposition and what he does. Chapter 3 is talking about the details of the building, of exactly who did what where, of how all the people, well, most of the people engaged. You find in one spot where it mentions that some of the leaders, some of their rulers did not put their backs to the work. We'll talk about that in a moment. But that's what chapter 3 is about, the details of who repaired what. And you look at that, this was a massive task. This was not just building up walls. You know, you have to have ways to get out of the city. You know, there's practical things like there's, you know, you've got to have gates to allow commerce to come and go. Well, those, those gates had been destroyed. They had to be rebuilt and put back in place. I mean, there's public sanitation issues that you have to deal with. And those areas have to be rebuilt and replaced because they were all destroyed. So you get the picture. This was a massive undertaking that had to be done with a limited group of people. Chapter 4, we see external opposition that arises as the work goes on. We have some initial opposition listed in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. Nehemiah's response to that. And then in verses 7 through 23, we see a conspiracy that the enemies have against Nehemiah. And what does he do? He prays to the Lord, and then he goes about and makes some wise plans on how to address it. You know, brethren, we're not fatalists. We don't just sit back and expect the Lord to do everything for us. We go to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessing. But then we take the means He's given us and we utilize it as wisely as we can. How much of the Bible, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, so many other places are very practical books that teach us how to think wisely. Nehemiah had that in his background and he used that. The combination of wise action with God's blessing is a wonderful thing. <clears throat> chapter 5. Chapter 4, we saw external opposition. Chapter 5, we see internal issues and dissension that arises. It turns out that there were some greedy men that needed to be rebuked in verses 1 through 13. Wealthy men who were more interested in furthering and increasing their wealth than they were in taking care of their nation. And Nehemiah rebukes them for it. We also see there another important part in verse, verses 14 through 19 of chapter 5. And that is Nehemiah was personally dedicated. He was His skin was in the, on the line for this. He gave of his own substance. He was the governor. A governor deserves to be treated like a governor, doesn't he? I mean, you think about our governor, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars do we have to spend in our taxings, tax funds to take care of the mansion, to take care of his needs as he entertains uh, dignitaries from other states and other nations on behalf of doing the business for our state? Nehemiah was in the same situation, but... At no time did he require that. 
He took a greatly reduced amount from the people. The rest of it he made up on his own. And if you think that's a small thing, at one point it mentions he had what? Was it 150 uh, visitors normally coming and going to his table from the surrounding provinces and all that as governor entertaining? He took that all out of his own pocket because he was more concerned about the glory of the Lord and helping the Lord's people than he was himself. Chapter 6, the work is completed. Now in the midst of it, there's further opposition, verses 1 through 9. Further internal opposition, verses 10 through 14, chapter 6. But in verses 15 through 16, we see where the work is done. The walls have been repaired. The gates have been repaired. They can lock it down now, and they're safe. They don't have to worry about their opponents externally because Jerusalem was a wonder. It was already sitting on a high hill on a mountain in its locale. And once you had good solid walls around it, it would take a huge force to try to take it. And once they had those walls completed, they could then rest assured that they could continue to do what they wanted to do about reviving the worship of Jehovah behind those safe, secure walls. But even in the middle of that rejoicing, there's problems. Chapter 7, we have a a census of all who completed the work. Verses 1 through 4, in particular, some of the faithful administrators of that work are listed. And then a census of the Jews in the land is given us in verses 5 through 73. Chapter 8 is one that we've looked at often that we love to think about in this congregation because it's the great worship service that came after this. That's where they came. The whole nation came together. And Ezra the scribe, who also had been sent back to restore the worship of Jehovah in the land, he and the Levites with Nehemiah opened up the word of God to read to the people, to explain it to them. To show it to them. And we've seen the great revival that came about from that preaching. I mean, they stood there all day long and they heard the word of God. And initially it tore up their hearts. Their sin that their fathers had done in the past. And Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites had to come and say, No, 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 don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We should rejoice because the Lord's revealed himself to us. He's showing us what we can do to please him. So go, eat the sweet. Enjoy yourselves. Rejoice because of the goodness of the Lord. That's chapter 8. The great revival, the encouragement that Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites gave the people. And notice the very end of that chapter, what happens? When you have a people whose heart is right with the Lord, who want to serve Him, what do you have happen? They find new things. It turns out the Feast of Booths had been forgotten. One of the original times of sacrifice and celebration that God had instituted under Moses, or after the time of Moses, the people had forgotten about for hundreds of years. But in reading the book, they, wrote, they said, oh, wait a minute now. Wait a minute. Didn't you tell us that 
once a year we're supposed to build these booths and sit there to remember God's great deliverance for us? Well, let's do it. What, what keeps us back from doing that, Ezra? Well, nothing. Nehemiah, can we go to it? Sure, go do it. And they were rejoicing. Because God was showing them new things that their fathers hadn't seen. Verse 9, we have the solemn assembly. Chapter 9, the solemn assembly and worship of God, where the people gather to confess their sins, verses 1 through 3. And the Levites lead the people in a prayer and a wonderful covenant with the Lord, verses 4 through 38. Chapter 10, we see the people who form that covenant. It actually lists their names. The names of those swearing to the covenant are in verses 1 through 27. The terms of the covenant are in verses 28 through 39. Then chapter 11 tells us about the disposition of the land in the city and around it of the Jews. You see who the leaders and residents of the city of Jerusalem itself. Remember, Jerusalem was not the only thing. They had been given permission to come back to the whole land. But as I said, I think I mentioned earlier, only 50,000 came back at this point in time. So you had a lot of people who had land outside in Judah and in Israel that were staying in Jerusalem to help it get built. Well, now that it's built, they could go back to their property, go back to their land. And it talks about that. It talks about the disposition of the people in Jerusalem, verses 1 through 19, and then the disposition of the people in Judah. Area surrounding him in verses 20 through 36. And again, what was one of the big purposes? Why did they want the city secured? To reestablish the worship of Jehovah. Well, what does it take to have the worship of Jehovah? You've got to have the priests. You've got to have the Levites who lead in the worship of God. Very interesting to see here. You don't see Nehemiah's name mentioned other than supporting these guys because he knew his role. I'm a political ruler. I can sit there and tell you how things ought to be run in Jerusalem, but those are the men who God's appointed to take care of our worship. And he made sure that they were taken care of in his reforms. We see the lineage of the priests and the Levites in verses 1 through 26. We see the dedication of the wall, the religious ceremony to thank God and to dedicate the walls of the city to him in verses 27 through 43. We see the list of the keepers of the treasury, the singers and the porters to do the work of God that were appointed in verses 44 through 47. We're down to the last chapter. The city's been rebuilt. Everything is back in place. The Levites, the priests, are serving the people in the worship of Jehovah. And then Nehemiah gets called away. You don't see it directly. You don't see him saying, I got called to go. But as you read chapter 13, you realize that something's happened. Nehemiah, after all, he was the king's cupbearer. The king was doing him a great service to allow him these 12 years to be here. He has to go back to the king's court for some period of time. And when he comes back, what does he find? Rejoicing people, serving the Lord, doing what they were instructed and commanded to do? No. He sees people that have backslidden. People that have gone back, forgotten what was told, disobeyed what was told. So he has to do four specific things we see listed here. First of all, he has to order the cleansing of part 
of the temple area because one of the enemies of the worship of Jehovah had been given prominence. A place that should have stored the sacrifices and the oil and all the things necessary for the worship of God had been taken out so this enemy of the people could have a nice place to stay. I mean, I don't know about you, but I look at that and say, what? But brethren, but for the grace of God, any of us can do any stupid thing. That's why God has given us leaders. That's why men, we have to be leaders in our families. But we'll get to that in a moment. Nehemiah has to reinstate the support of the Levites. He comes back to the city and he notices, wait, where are the singers? He goes to the temple and the singers aren't there. He notices the Levites aren't here either. What's wrong? Well, the people stopped giving. We got to make a living. I mean, we do have to take care of our families. We do have fields that the Lord gave us. So we're, we, they all went back to their fields to take care of their families. So what does he do? He takes care of that. He set up. He sets them down in their place. You ever heard that phrase? Set somebody in their place. Nehemiah sets the rulers in their place. He reads them the riot act. That's 20th century speech. For tells them what they did wrong. And then they reinstate all the offerings that they should be making. So the priest, the Levites, and the singers can do their job. He also notices when he gets back, this is the Sabbath day. Why are the vendor stands opened? How come those guys from Tyre, you know, the merchants from Tyre, why are they here in downtown selling their wares? Don't you remember? Why did we go into captivity for 70 years? Because we hadn't kept the Sabbath. And the Lord told us, well, I'm going to take the 70 Sabbaths that you didn't do, and you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. Right. What are you trying to do? Do you want us to go back into captivity some more? Right. And so he cleans up that situation. And finally, verses 23 through 31, we see there's a bunch of ungodly marriages that have come about. So bad that he's sitting there looking and seeing all these little, you know, children running around. They've got a, a, a Jewish daddy and an Ammonite or a Moabite mommy. And the kids don't even speak Hebrew. Right. And he starts talking to them. And they're like, huh? What? And he takes care of that. He rebukes them in strong ways. To take care of that. Because that is something. Can somebody help me? Way back, way, way back before there was an Israel, did God do something to this planet because the sons of men, I mean, excuse me, the sons of God, meaning the godly descendants of Seth, were intermarrying with the beautiful daughters of men? Did he save the old people and the children? Did Noah have a, uh, have a barge behind him that he put all the old folks and the children on there? No, only Noah and his family survived the flood. He destroyed the world. He destroyed the population of the earth because of that. 
Anybody who thinks that, you know, I can marry anybody I want to, well, you physically you can, but if you're a child of God and you want His blessing, you don't have an option. Anyway, that's a quick review of the book of Nehemiah. Let's look at some of the lessons that we can get from this. First of all, Nehemiah, I think we could all agree, had a vision. Once he saw the difficulty that the nation was in, Nehemiah looked and came up with a plan. He had a vision, not of broken down walls, but walls rebuilt. Not of people afraid of their pagan neighbors, but people who were boldly going to worship the Lord Jehovah every Sabbath day, fulfilling His commandments, pleasing Him, and enjoying their blessing. Enjoying the blessing of God upon their lives. You know, Proverbs 29.18 tells us, where there is no vision, the people perish. And brethren, men, I'm speaking primarily to you, and you young men in particular, you need to have a vision. You need to think about things because if you don't have a vision, if you don't have a plan, if you're not thinking ahead, what do I need to do with my wife? What do I need to do with my children? How do I need to instruct them? What are the things we should do as a family? What should we not do? How can I arrange the circumstances of their youth to make to help my children know what they ought to do? What can I show them in my life? What things can I give them as far as opportunities to learn how to live life properly? If you don't have that, where there is no vision, the people perish. Man does not get better left alone. Man just continues his downward plunge into sin and degradation without great efforts to hold it back. I say great efforts. If you read anything in the book of Nehemiah, especially certain chapters, you see him boldly doing things. I mean, chapter 13. What was his reaction when uh, when he saw those mongrel children, right, who couldn't speak? Verse 25 of 13, And I contended with them, talking about the people, and I cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. That's pretty violent. But brethren, there's sometimes that we need to be violent. We need to put forth great effort, great thought, great energy to pull people out of sin or to keep people in righteousness from falling into sin. Hosea 4.6 tells us, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of, the Lord, the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Brethren, each of us, men, we are kings and priests unto God in our households. 
Do we want God to forget us and our children? Live life any way you want to. Otherwise, grab a hold of things, make a plan, and stick with it. A plan that you formed from this book and the precepts that are taught herein. Amos 8, 11 through 12. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. That's a scary thought, brethren. That is a scary thing. Does anybody have a problem seeing that that's the condition of America today? That's why we need to have some energy and some violence to do this. And you understand me, brethren. I'm not talking about taking a gun and shooting anybody, but I'm talking about violently controlling our emotions, controlling what what influences we allow in our families, being like rock, having a forehead of flint, making sure we're doing what's right. What's this vision going to, what are the pieces, the components of this vision that'll help us, guide us to where we ought to do? First of all, you've got to understand the Lord. His holiness should help direct us how we live. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 15, 16, but as he hath, which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So holiness is the first thing. Look at what Nehemiah did. All the way through, you see him making a difference. You know, when those, initially, when he comes into the land, and the enemies of the people say, Oh, we want to help you too. Can we help build the walls? We'll, we can give you some help with that. He says, you've got no part or portion of this work. Who were they? Who were the main enemies? Sanballat, a Horonite, which is a city of Moab. Tobiah, the Ammonite. Moab and Ammon. What were those? Lot's descendants. Godly Abraham. Righteous Lot. Scripture does say he was a righteous man. But what were his descendants like? Abraham controlled his family. Abraham commanded his his household to obey the Lord. Lot chose the plains of Sodom. Lot chose the easy life. Moab and Ammon were thorns in the sides of the people forever. After that, the people of God. It specifically tells us in Deuteronomy that it lists some of the different people like, oh, an Egyptian? Oh, if you get an Egyptian who comes and wants to become an Israelite, okay, he can do it. You got somebody from this other nation? Well, four generations down, yeah, his descendants can come to the nation. An Ammonite and a Moabite? Never. They have no part or portion in Israel. Ever. 
Because when Israel came out, God gave them land. God blessed them with property. When Israel went into Egypt, they were building their kingdoms. When Israel came out, all Israel said is, Hey guys, we need to get to where God's given us our property. And we'll pay you for any water that we drink out of your wells as we're on our way. We're not going to touch your property, We're, but we need to go through your territory to get there. They came up with their armies and said, you're not going to step one foot on our, our territory. Worse than that, who was Balak from? He was an Ammonite. Balak, who got Balaam to try to curse the people of Israel. God had blessed them, and they turned to be enemies of God's people. So they were never to enter the, the, the nation whatsoever. Holiness of the Lord. Understand the great power and greatness of God. Because that can give us courage, can it? Oh, does anybody like Isaiah chapter 40? I mean, that's one of my favorite sections of the book. I think my favorite, my, my favorite verses are the tail end of that book. Let me just read you a few verses here to talk about the Lord and see if this inspires you with confidence. If this gives you courage to know that this is the God that we worship. This is the God that we pray to. This is the God who will deliver us. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales? And the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? Right. <laughs> With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the paths of judgment? And taught him knowledge? And showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. He taketh up the isles is a very little thing. And Lebanon, remember Lebanon with their cedars. I mean, history records they're about the size of our redwoods today. Everybody wanted the cedars of Lebanon to build their ships from. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing. In vanity. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? I mean, this is the God we worship, brethren. Can he take care of us? Read the book of Nehemiah. See the different places where he needed help. The Lord was right there to help him. To take care of him. More than that, his faithfulness. Think about the Lord and his faithfulness. His compassion and mercy to those who seek Him. I mean, this should comfort us and encourage us, brethren. Think about Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. First uh, Kings 8, 23-24. And He said... This is Solomon in his great prayer of dedication of the temple. Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath. Who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart 
who hast kept with thy servant David, my father, that thou promised him. Thou speakest also with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. Solomon knew it. He could look around at the great kingdom in peace that he was over at that point and know that it was the Lord had blessed his father David. As I've already mentioned, one of the other things you've got to have if you're going to have some sort of vision is you need to have an emotional commitment to what's going on. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt serve the God, obey the God, you're right, brother, love. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. That's a commitment to the Lord. That's not just halfway. I mean, that's doing everything that he says, looking at all of his commandments and making sure that we're following each one of them. And this follows too, though. It's not just a commitment to the Lord. It's a commitment to his people. Because our Lord Jesus Christ told us in Mark chapter 12, 29 through 30, when he was asked, what's the great commandment? He answered him, the first of the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. He's quoting what I just read you. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And he didn't stop. He went right on. And the second is like it. Namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. You want to serve the Lord? Can you get better than the red writing? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbors yourself. So brethren, we need to have that same kind of commitment to the Lord, to our families, to our brethren in this congregation. We have to know what the Lord has for us. Again, if we're going to make a plan that's got to be executed, we've got to know, well, what does the Lord expect of us? You know, how about starting in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13? Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Pretty good. Matthew six thirty-three. But seek ye... What? First. You don't mean second or third? First. I seek first my career, second my pleasure. No, thank you. Amen. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Amen. I want to be righteous and holy in all my dealings with all men. Everything I do, I want to be right because that's what my father is like. I want to reflect his nature and he's good to all. He's right in everything he does. So I want to study his book so I can be just like him. It's not hard, is it? His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. And that's clothing, raiment, food, the things that most everybody else thinks they've got to strive for. No, he says, no, you take care of my things first. I'll take care of your things for you. So, so already we're seeing, you know, what we should do with our lives, follow the Lord. We're seeing what our priorities should be, serving the Lord first, 
seeking his kingdom first. How do we, you know, what means do we use to achieve the goals we're going after? And get philosophical for a second here, okay? How do I decide, well, what's the best means to do that? It's real simple. It's one of our favorite verses for this congregation. Psalm 119, 128. Thank you. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. I don't need to worry about trying to pick and choose things. I learn God's precepts. I learn what he says, in what order, in the right cir- in each circumstance. That's right. Now, that takes some work. That takes some effort. That takes some study. But with that, it's laid out. What I should do with my life. How I should make judgment calls. And I hate every false way. What if that false way is my own opinion? I should hate that one first. I mean, we always like to point out there, of them over there and that group there. No, this is the one I want to look at first because this is the one that's going to sink me. It's that traitor within I have to worry about. You've got to have an eye that's constantly focused on those goals. You've got to have some dedication. This is not a, well, once a quarter I'll sit down and think about this. Paul tells us in Hebrews how we need to look at our lives. Take heed, brethren, lest lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Was there an evil heart of unbelief that led them to depart from the living God when Nehemiah was away? Yep. But exhort one another every once in a while, every quarter, once a month, once a week, daily. While it is called... Today. Right now. As soon as you read something in Scripture that catches your attention, you ought to make a change right then. The Lord has been kind enough to show you something right away. Do it. Act on it. Yeah, you can make tweaks to your course of action down the road if you need to, but if you see something where you're in sin, where you're not doing something right, stop dead in your tracks and turn around. Now. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Mm-hmm. Nehemiah had a spirit, the final one of this point, of self-sacrifice. Luke chapter 9, 23 through 25. You see, brethren, sometimes reading the red writing can hurt. What did our Lord say about how we should view our lives and how we should do things? And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, does anybody in this room claim to have come after Jesus? Do we claim to be a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. We claim to be a Christian. We're Christ-like. We're like Christ our Lord. If any of those things apply to you, listen. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. What's a cross? Is cross just an instrument of death? Or just a burden? Even cross, the cross is an instrument of torture for death. It's not just, he didn't say take up your bow and arrow. You know, I mean, I get shot with an arrow, I bleed out and I die. If I'm on a cross, I'm suffering. 
That's the nature of our service, brethren. It's a suffering service. We've got to deny ourselves to take up a suffering service. And follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, for the Lord's sake, not your wife, not your children, though they can benefit from this sacrifice, but if you've got Jesus at the forefront of the sacrifice that you're making, the same shall save it. For what is a man's advantage if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? Again, think about Nehemiah and what he gave up. He was the governor. What did he end up being? Basically a guard. Watching the building as it occurred. Arranging all the circumstances to make sure everybody was safe. Have a vision. Think about what you're doing. Think about what needs to be done and how you're going to guide and direct those resources that are under your authority. Pray. Number two, pray and seek God's blessing in everything. Very quickly. The same enemy that has stalked our pastors is stalking me now. Chapter 1. Let's look at an example prayer of Nehemiah. Very quickly. Nehemiah chapter 1. After he's mourned and wept and fasted, he praised before God, it tells us in verse 4. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. When you go to pray, profess God's glory. Lift him up high. Glorify him in your prayers. Verse 6, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now. Day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which they have committed, we have committed, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt, verse 7, very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Confess your sins. Confess the sins of your people. We're Americans. That's a hideous thought. We need to confess the sins of our nation. Verse 8. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, Though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Invoke God's jealousy. Or actually, excuse me, first of all, remind Him of His promises. Lord, You promised this. You gave us this. I'm claiming that, Father. Profess and claim His promises. Verse 9, but if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and them. Oh, excuse me, I was there. Verse 10, now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Invoke God's jealousy. 
Lord, it's not just me. I'm yours. Think about your people who you redeemed. I mean, you made this promise, Lord, and then you did all these great things. These are your people. Get him personally involved. Verse 11, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants, who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, bring forth what you need to. Now, show the Lord what you have need for and ask his blessing on it. Profess God's glory. Confess your sins. Remind God of his promises. Invoke his jealousy and request his blessing. Then as you go through the book of Nehemiah, what do you see? You see him praying for blessing and godly activities. You see him asking for deliverance from enemies. You see him uh, having a combination of both prayer and wise action. Chapter 4. Remember, we hear us about the verse four, chapter 4, verse 9. I want to point this one out. I love this one. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. He had enemies. They were going to attack. They had threatened to attack. Fine. Lord, help us. Okay, here's how we're going to disposition our forces. Pray for strength for his work. I mean, there's a lot of problems out there they had, they could see. Well, pray for strength. I'll tell you something, brethren. I've had circumstances in the past month at my work that I, my sweet sister, I've had to ask her many times, you know, do I really need to go into work today? Can I just stay home and play sick? But I say, no, Lord, this is you. You said you're you're my God. You're going to protect me. I need strength, Lord. I I can't handle the circumstances that I'm going to be facing. Help me, Lord. And he's done it every day. Something turns around. I mean, I'll you know end a day with a potential disaster facing me the next morning. But okay, Lord, I put in my reasonable effort. Psalm 127, verse one. I put in my reasonable effort, Lord. I am trusting in you. Lord, if it's my fault, forgive me for it. Help me. And all of a sudden, you walk in the next day and it's totally changed around overnight. And not just, and I'm not just talking about my attitude. I mean, that's, that's a victory enough when your attitude turns around and turns to what it should be. But when all of a sudden, these forces allied against you, well, suddenly they're allied to help you try to figure out what you're going to do. That's the Lord. But you don't get that if you don't pray for it. You've got to pray for it. You've got to ask Him for that. Very briefly, point three, do right. Don't compromise. Do right no matter what the circumstances. Think about me with me real quickly. Nehemiah faced a major building project. Walls broken down. Gates burned and destroyed. A lot of rubbish. I mean, it wasn't just that, well, we've got to repair this. No, you've got to clear away 70 years worth of rubbish. I mean, Adam and Zach can tell you, you know, how long does it take for a couple of trees to fall down, you know, get in the way of anything. 70 years worth of fallen trees and things in the way and things decaying, vines creeping in. 
That's what he saw in chapter 2 as he went by night to survey the circumstances. And yet, what did he do? He went to encourage the people the next day. God's going to take care of us. The Lord is going to take care of us, and we can do this. Think about your resource constraints. I mean, those of us who had to manage people and uh, projects. I mean, you don't have an unlimited budget, do you? You got restraints. Well, as I pointed out, there are virtually 50,000 people to cover a city that could hold a million. That's a lot of territory to cover. A lot of walls to repair. You also have the fact that everybody's having to pull double duty. You can't afford to have a separate guard force to protect you. You don't have enough. So everybody who's repairing and taking away the rubbish has to keep their sword on their side. And you're sitting there walking around, checking things out with the guy of the trumpet because you're so few that if they did attack you, and everybody was ready. Well, you're still going to have to marshal your forces in one location because you can't put people everywhere. Think about the logistics of taking care of such an organization. Think about the disappointments. Because, brethren, they're going to come. You had lazy leaders. You had leaders, people you should have been able to trust who weren't putting their backs to the work. You had greedy leaders, those who are out for themselves to make their fortune, to feather their nest. And then after you've taken and put everything in order, the walls are built, the temple is being taken care of, and the priests and Levites and the singers are doing their job there. You just go away for a couple of years and you come back and what do you find? Everybody's forgotten everything. Everything's fallen apart. So you got to come back in and reestablish everything. You find out that the enemy has been given preeminence, that the support of God's ministers has been abandoned, the dedication to personal godliness has been abandoned, <clears throat> and the walls of personal separations within families have been broken down. What do you do? Do you quit? Do you give up and say, I just can't do it? No, if you're Nehemiah, you keep on going. You grab somebody by the neck and say, what are you doing? You have to do right in spite of opposition from without. How many times in here do we see that, first of all, there's an attempt to ridicule the work when he first arrives. Then you get the intimidation. Oh, we're going to attack you when you don't look for it. Then they personally attack his character. You know, it's been reported to us We've got it on good authority that you're just trying to make yourself the king. And we're going to put that back to King Artaxerxes. What do you think he's going to say about that? Come on down and let's talk about it. And then you've got secret conspiracies going on. What do you do? You do right. You keep plugging away at it. And here to me is the most difficult thing. What about the opposition within? I mean, it's one thing when the Ammonites and the Moabites are the ones who are attacking you. What about it when it's your own brethren here in the congregation? What do you do? Do you get hurt? Oh, well, I'll just, I'll just withdraw myself then. They don't, if they don't want my help, then that's fine. We'll just let them do their thing. No. I mean, you had the brethren that were sympathetic to the external enemies, the brethren that were intimidated by the circumstances, the brethren that were selfish, what do you do? 
Like I said, you grab one and slap him upside the head and say, what are you doing? Our God deserves better than this. My final point is follow-up. You can make your plans. We should make our plans. We should be doing, executing our plans, but always expect that there have to be changes. And even once you've executed things, once you've taught somebody how to do something, don't expect they're still going to do it. Don't expect that, because all of us are different, brethren. Not everyone has the same level of commitment. So enforcement is what's necessary. The way our brother handles our congregation, I think he understands and he knows Nehemiah backwards and forwards. There's times when things are going right and we can rejoice. There are times when we can sit down and learn new things and we can prosper and mature. And then there's times where things have gotten out of a little hand, right? And what do we have to do? He has to come and step on our toes. He has to come and remind us, no. Don't you remember? That's not what we're supposed to do. This is what we're supposed to do. And there's some that can just hear it in a sermon and it's like, oh, Father, forgive me. And they want to toe the line. They still need to be remembered. Me reminded to do it right. They didn't think about it on their own, but they can take a gentle rebuke. Then there's others that will sit back and say, who are you to tell me what to do? What do you do? You get in his face (laughs) if they need it. Anger and public rebuke can be required and can be a good thing. Confrontation and setting people in their place is appropriate when duties have not been performed. Giving authority to others and following up on their activities. It's appropriate activity. How about this? Can you require your family members to only associate with those of your choice? If you're a godly man, that's what you've got to do. That's what you've got to do. It's not in this book, but in Ezra, who was contemporaneous with uh, Nehemiah. Do you remember one of the interesting activities they had towards the end of his book? They had a national day of divorce. They had a day where it had come up that all these important people had married pagan wives. And what was the result? Nope, ain't going to happen. There were children involved. Now, please, I'm not saying that that's what we... But my whole point is, that's how serious this is. That is how serious our personal family relationships are. All it takes is a Jehoshaphat, one of the four great kings of Judah, to allow his son to marry a beautiful, talented Athaliah. And you've got three generations of kings cut out of the, cut out of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Without someone to press them forward, the majority is going to fall backwards, men. Whether it's our wives, our children, or other brothers in this church. That's why this is a continual task. When do we get out of this? When does our responsibility end? 
if we want to be Nehemiah's, if we want to be the kind of man like Nehemiah who's going to lead revival in our land, whether it's our families, our congregation, our country, what's it going to take? When do you get to retire? You read my notes. (laughs) That's when it ends, brethren, when we're out of here. We're laboring now. R&R, you know, those of you who have been in the military, R&R, rest and recreation. That's what heaven is. Not now. So if the Lord gives you 70 years of life, well, when you're 71, you can rest. Because you won't be here. Brethren, the Lord has been very kind to us. He's given us a great example. I would encourage you to go back and reread this book. Please, I hope you can find more things than I showed you. I hope you can find more things that's in, in the outline that, that we will have available shortly, which is just a repeat of the outline from 10, 12 years ago. The Lord has been very good to us to help us to see these things, to understand them. If we want the blessing of a Nehemiah, we need to be ready to do what Nehemiah did. And again, you young men, many of us are reaching the age where most of our task is done. You're the ones to whom the burden of responsibility for our congregation will rest in the future. I pray that you will be Nehemiah's, that you will take this as your personal duty to make sure that the worship of Jehovah is instituted and maintained in our midst. And may Jesus Christ be magnified.